this is H Hour. Become a patron of H Hour at patron.charliecharlie1.com and pick up H Hour merchandise at shop.charliecharlie1.com. Enjoy this episode. Don't say no comment to questions. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like the shortest most boring podcast ever. <laughs> ever. Ever. Yeah. Um, I don't I've never I've never had I've never had that. No comment. No. I've had people who are they don't answer very thoroughly. They, you know, they say Dance around the handbags. So, yeah, yeah. So, oh, how, you know, how was that experience for you? Yeah, it's all right, yeah. <laughs> you know, you think you know you have to have a conversation that people are going to listen to. Yeah, like, just like help me out, help me out. Let's just we're discussing things. Um, what were we talking before? What were we talking about before? Oh, CBD. Yeah. So the like you listen to the Grace Bless Happily podcast. Yeah. So one of the things I did when I when I finished that podcast, so I've been taking CBD for about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, regularly for about a year, and it was it, I did what probably most people did. I went online. I saw CBD tablets, yeah, and I thought I'll just buy them and start taking them. And what I realised after speaking to Grace is that that dose is so low when you yeah. buy them. Online, it's so low. Uh, you, they, they, they display the doses in a real weird way of strength in a real weird way. So they'll say, it'll say a bottle of CBD and it'll say seven seven hundred and fifty milligrams. Mm-hmm. That's the whole bottle. So it's not per tablet. You know, it's a weird right, way okay. they do it. It's, it's not per tablet. So you want to look at per tablet. And when I, the ones I was taking were five milligrams, right? And I wasn't sure if that was an, having an impact or not. And the impact I was looking for was um, calmness. Yeah. I wanted to be less busy mind. I wanted to be less anxious, a bit more calmness. And also I was looking to take it for the anti-inflammatory properties. So to reduce the niggles and injuries mm-hmm. and pains and average and reduces the chance of injury right and reduces the impact of injury as well yeah uh so did that podcast with grace then thought i'm taking way too little uh, I, I should be looking at somewhere between a 25 milligram and 65 75 milligram per tablet or, or dose per day as opposed to five milligrams right okay. yeah so i went online looking and i found a so she recommended a company um on the podcast, but she recommended that company because they, 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 the, the purity of the CBD and the chances of having a lot of THC in there, yeah. relative, relative lot, were really, they were just really well controlled. There was very little chance of that. So I didn't go with that company. I found another one because it was quick delivery on Amazon. I don't like waiting around. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I started taking twenty five milligrams a day. This one, say noticeable difference okay like no 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 in your mind oh is this a placebo is it not and it's like fucking noticeable like 100 yeah. percent noticeable difference much yeah i think i'm much calmer noticeably calmer noticeably less anxious uh and and yeah they're the two main things and that's on 25 25 milligrams a day okay yeah uh so i'm, I'm really happy in terms of so i found that and, and realized that impact uh so people out there yeah think about what are you you know, if you're trying CBD, you're thinking, oh, is it really, is it really doing anything for me? I don't know. Look at what you're taking on a daily basis and up it. So yeah. I, you know, like start with 25 milligrams and then up it from there if you need to. But like with anything, there is probably side effects if you start whacking <laughs> 200, 300 milligrams <laughs> in your body. Although I don't know. Uh, Grace would know. Um, yeah, so you take it as well? Or you? 
No, no, I don't take it. No, so but my my daughter has oh, taken it. Yeah. yeah, oil. Yeah. yeah, so the oil. Yeah, correct. yeah. I've got it's a friend. I've got a friend who takes the oil, but he doesn't. So I asked him what what dose is. He doesn't know because how much is in a drop? Like yeah. how big should a drop be? He doesn't know. And then my dad has started using CBD. Randomly phoned me yesterday to talk about that. I thought, oh, he must have listened to my last podcast because he listens to the podcast and he hadn't. Okay. Yeah, and, and I thought, how are you taking it? He said, I'm smoking it. Okay. I'm thinking, <laughs> all right. And he, you know, he, he has been a weed smoker in the past and dealt with the mental stuff mainly. Yeah. Um, uh, but he, so when he explained it to me, he's, he's put in, it's the leaf. He's putting it in with, with his okay. backy. Yeah, but okay. he's not getting stone. He's, I think he's smoking hemp. Right, okay. Cause, so so you wear the difference between hemp and cannabis? Yeah. Oh, okay, right. So for people who aren't aware, hemp doesn't contain THC. Yep. You, hemp's got CBD. It's less potent. It's got CBD. Looks the same as a weed plant. Smells the same as a weed plant. Smokes the same as a weed plant. Is not weed. It's yep. hemp. But it's got CBD, so... That's it, CBD. I think the interesting thing that Grace was mentioning in, in the you know podcast is the different levels of THC in different products and how that can vary sometimes. Although there is a that, that's controlled as they're well. They're allowed to it? sell. <coughs> they're allowed. So companies are allowed to sell CBD over you as long as it's at least ninety eight percent pure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, ninety eight percent. So two percent or less THC in it. And with 2% or less THC, you're not going to know. So yeah. THC is the thing that gets you high, right? Or, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the psychoactive component, cannabinoid in the cannabis plant. 2% is not going to get you high. Yeah. But the reason she was, well, yeah, you listen to it, the reason she did say it's important is because in their, in their research that they've done, people who, so THC can, would, that is the thing. So if you're in, a, in the military and you're getting drugs tested, mm -hmm. when people get caught for cannabis in in the military, they get it's THC they're getting caught for. Yeah, they're being tested for the the, the Thai whatever blah 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 cannabinoid THC. Yeah. So if you're if you're taking CBD on a regular basis, and it's got maybe two percent THC in it, which you can legally buy over the counter CBD, then she was saying in their research they've seen that that can build up in people those two percent over time. Yeah. And over time, you could get to a a level of THC in your system whereby you would fail a drugs test if you were drugs tested, even though you're not smoking weed. But it would look like yeah. you had been. Yeah. That's that's the point on the 98%, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of, yeah, I suppose, blew me away a bit when she mentioned that because I would imagine that, you know, just uh, you know, just people just generally up, uptake in use of CBD has been considerable, particularly, I would imagine, after the pandemic or through the pandemic, after the pandemic, you know, that uh, it's become more prevalent in use. Do you know what I mean? You could get into that trap. Do you know what I mean? A yeah, well, this is, this is why I like having the conversation we have and this conversation we have right now because it's that not knowledge of it is important to have. Like, if you look at the... So my experience, that five milligrams not doing anything. And that's not just me. Like, I, I think yeah. that with the CBD product, people are just buying, like I did, they're just buying CBD because it says CBD on it. They're not yeah. thinking about the dosage. It's like going and getting... buying. If you went and bought paracetamol now mm -hmm. and, you, and it said... Um, five milligrams per tablet you you would know five milligrams hang on a minute now paracetamol should be like 200 milligrams a tablet and that five milligrams not even touch the sides that we had that knowledge with cbd so when they make 
a five milligram tablet of CBD, that is a lot cheaper than making a CBD tablet. That's actually going to do something. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they're sort of riding this wave of people buying it. They're taking it because, oh, that's a, like a cool hip thing to do, take CBD. I can say I take CBD as opposed to people who are taking it for legitimate reasons, like I am, right? Yeah. Um, they're riding that wave. So I, and I've gone on for a year, paying money for a year, and I'm taking CBD, and it's not, I haven't been getting an impact from it because yeah. it's really low strength. And they're getting away with selling it. People think they're getting something from it. You know, it's like fucking hell, man. That'll, that you know, that'll that'll change at some point. Then again, at the same time, I'm. Um, I was going to say I'm not at the uh, at the mercy of any drugs test, but then that's irrelevant with the two percent. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, anyway, THC, right? Yeah. So, is your daughter, how does your daughter find the oils? She yeah, I, I mean, um, I think it's it's proved really Is helpful. It droplets under the tongue yeah, yeah correct yeah just proved very you know helpful in terms of creating that calmness oh that's good which is uh which is good i think yeah. it's uh i think it probably gets absorbed much quicker as well if you put it under the tongue yeah. right absolutely yeah, that is good that is good um yeah yeah so <clears throat> off of cbd it's not what we came here to talk about <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk about travels and adventures in geography and, and, and uh, everywhere you've been in the book you've written. However, we were talking off air. So you were one of the, you were part of one of the first companies to go into Iraq commercially for business after the invasion of Iraq and all the carnage of the aftermath in oh what was it oh four oh five oh six oh seven oh, yeah well, yeah you went into Baghdad right yeah that that's you know that's correct so it was in uh, we were invited by our customer our then customer Talia uh, to go to Iraq for a I suppose a connectivity conference and <coughs> it was held at a hotel um, at Baghdad International Airport BAP um, I would say hotel. Uh, <laughs> It was uh, obviously within the green zone and uh, in a pre prefab prefab hotel, and uh, uh, yeah, we were we were there for for two days. You know, we were we had obviously people bus to us. We had uh, you know, it's quite a lot of uh, interest in us being there as well. So the the press were out in force coming to uh, interview, and I I did try to use some of my Arabic, but they weren't interested. They wanted. To talk to them in English. Well, it's different Arabic there, isn't it? Yeah. When I first when I first went there after I left the military, I first went working there, and I thought, right, I need to really start trying to learn Arabic just because I've always wanted to learn language in my adult like, adult learning. Long story short, I downloaded an app. I was using an app to learn it. Okay. And uh, what I didn't know was the app was teaching me... Um, what the Iraqis refer to as dirty Arabic, Egyptian <laughs> Arabic, different. It was different. Like it was the the, the 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 regional dialect, the regional variations in the words and stuff. It was Egypt orientated, and I remember asking uh, the first time I used it, and I said to mm -hmm. one of the new team members, I said, I think it was Isaac. I think I think I said something like, yeah, Isaac and Isaac, whatever. Yeah. Isaac, yeah, like how are you? And his face screwed up. He's like, why the fuck are you talking like that <laughs> in English? And I was like, what? I was just asking how I you. you don't speak don't speak like that. Yeah, it's filthy, fil filthy dog language or something like that, he said. 
And then it was a schlonick, you know, a schlonick. Well, okay, oh, I won't say that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, at the end of the, you know, it's it's understandable. You know, I suppose the Egyptian dialect, and you're right, you know, there's something like 28 <laughs> different dialects of Arabic, excluding sub-dialects as well. You know, so you can get nuance, even within Egypt, just within within Egypt, you can get Kyrian um nuances you can get alexandrian nuances how does that compare to other languages so 28 different yeah, dialects of egyptian how does that compare to english yeah i don't i, I mean uh i think i'm you know we have we obviously have variances in in use of language in english um but not to the extent that i think that they're quite markedly different okay in arabic in and what I, way? Well, I mean, I just get, you know, so when I when I first started working, I worked for one of the very, well, the very first uh, independent television news companies, Arabic television news companies, and everyone used English because that was the common, do you know what I mean, the, 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 the common language that everyone could communicate with uh, effectively because, you know, you just have this diversity, you know, it's between... Maghrebi or the or the Moroccan dialect, say Maghrebi dialect uh, of Arabic, and say Egyptian is just very very different, quite quite stark. Um, it's hard to do, it's hard to describe perhaps, but in English, but um, uh, it's not just a it's not just a difference in pronunci pronunciation. It's actually different use of words, and in fact, when I was studying Arabic, you know. Um, you know, obviously, Gulf Gulf War One had st started in uh, my fir first year, uh, which um, meant that all these different language schools that used to be open to us as students were suddenly closed. So we all we all went to uh, either Egypt to Alexandria, and a few of, few of my <coughs> colleagues went to study uh, in Yemen, uh, which again is a completely different Yemeni dialect is completely different. How different we talking? Like. You, you would struggle to understand yeah it i mean I, I would struggle yeah so i i think that egyptian arabic is actually in fairness i wouldn't call it dirty i think is uh, <laughs> don't tell me <laughs> you know it is is the one that's most accessible because of the just the power of the egyptian <clears throat> media egyptian media the egyptian film industry you know just the circulation of egyptian films the circulation of egyptian news as well in the region um so everyone kind of understands it do, do, do you know what I mean? It's kind of why do they have that power there? I, I think it's just because they they had a very vibrant film industry. I think first and foremost, you know, um, you know, if you go back to kind of I suppose the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, you know, um, more so than any other other part of the Middle East region, and then as a consequence, obviously, those films in Arabic were getting distributed. I uh, didn't realize this. I yeah, because okay. uh, they have a massive film industry in Egypt. Massive. So I'm guessing that most of the films that you, most of the films I would have seen that they're like on Arabic TV or TV I've seen in Iraq, for example, when I, when I was working there, yeah. or well, that's the best example, or like Qatar maybe when I'd be transiting through there, that would highly likely be from out of the Egypt film industry. Egyptian Correct. Film, oh, Correct. I didn't know this. Okay. Because yeah. when because naively as a Westerner, out, when you think of film industry outside of the West. You default to Bollywood, don't you? Yeah. Oh, well, I, not you obviously don't because you know more. <laughs> but I think, okay, yeah, you've got like Hollywood and you've got Bollywood. There's nothing else, but obviously there is. And then you've got 
then you must have, apart from the, the Egyptian film industry, there must be something separate again in terms of the films being chucked out in places like Nigeria. There must be some African powerhouses there, relatively speaking. I, I, I don't know, but I'm sure. Unintentional I'm comedy. Sure. Slider, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think in my in my third year, I, I also... Uh, I'm cringing now. I chose to... Uh, I chose to study Sudanese dialect, okay, which, and I naively thought, oh, it'll be easy because it's just, you know, it's, it's just Egyptian and just a bit south, uh, which is just wrong because you you get you then get you you get words thrown in that uh, just don't really. So I'll give you an example. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll just say uh, I'll say say words so. so Shalacha or shuluch, you know, this is the scarification on the on the face which they do in Sudan. You, you know, again, it's not a word that's that's prevalent or used anywhere else. Or, uh, you know, in a in a wedding ceremony, uh, the bride and groom they would gaadina la angaribwa laban baden. So they would sit on an, on a, on a on a camel stool and spit. Um, milk at each other, you know. Again, it's the husband not, and wife. Yeah, correct. As part of the, <laughs> part as part of the sort of the the wedding. The Why worry, do they do wedding, that? What's that? It's what, part of the wedding ceremony. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, do, you, do you know what I mean? So these are cultural yeah. nuances to to yeah. Sudan that aren't, you know, they they're not practiced in Egypt. They're not practiced in Iraq. So they don't have that. They they're not. Uh, what's the word? transversal or you know transferable from one yeah. dialect to to uh to another i before you started saying that uh, that those 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 uh given the explanations i was i was thinking it was kind of like it would kind of like getting a, you know someone from china over here to mm -hmm. study english in whatever <laughs> college or uni right in let, let's say it's london okay you can learn english and they learn english and then the the china person the Chinese person says, "Right, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go learn the Brummy dialect now. <laughs> that can't be that hard because <laughs> it's just English." Or they go, "All right, I'm gonna go learn the Glaswegian dialect now. It can't be that hard. It's just English." Not knowing that people who speak English everywhere struggle to fucking understand those dialects. I mean, Brummy is like a different world, especially here. We're, like we're in Leamington Spa now. Wild. The uh, the the dialect here and the accent here is so mild, right? You got twenty minutes on a train, yeah, you, or drive thirty minutes west. You could be on a different planet, a different language. You don't, you don't understand. It's so wildly different from the way they pronounce standard words to words that don't exist anywhere outside of Birmingham, and that's the Bur the British Birmingham. <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's not Birmingham with like second or third gener uh, like a, a second or third generation. Um, you know, from from immigrants who came came over and and lived here, it's like wild, mate, wild. Yeah. Same everywhere, I think. But it's a, it's that similar kind of, I suppose, dialectic difference that we do have like yeah. that. Uh, it's just a bit more. Uh, it it just is is another. It goes on another level of difference. Uh, the you know, um, yeah. I had a thinking about it again. Another example. I uh, I messaged. Um, someone who's northern irish the other day right and i said do you know this do you know this person 
and I sent I sent them. It's Liz McConney actually. Okay. I sent Liz in a picture of someone. I said, "Do you know this person?" And the response again. I'm thinking of a Chinese person doing this interaction. And the response I got if I text was N O I I I I I I I I I. Right. Okay. Now, <laughs> you can only know the what that is if you know the accent. So what Liz is saying is, "Nay," she's saying, "No, no." So she's saying, uh, like, okay. it's like an exclamation. Now it's like, <laughs> oh, it's like we would say, oh, <laughs> now that person, oh, she's no, <laughs> it's not an English word. It's not a, one you would say. It's not one you would type down. But because I know the accent, I think, no, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, languages, languages. Why did you choose? Why did you choose to learn Arabic? So that, um, that's a great question. <laughs> And 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 I think you know I I kind of often ask myself that uh, no, um, you know I I spent my a vast 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 majority of my childhood growing up in the in the Middle East region so it's easy to say that it it just seemed the right thing to do at the time, but um, I think I I did have if you like a a cultural you know affinity um, with with the region and. Um, I suppose it was it was different. Do you, do, you, do you know what I mean? I did I did some of my A levels were in, you know, the English and maths and and politics. I could have probably gone off and done an English degree or whatever, you know. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I, I I just felt a great affinity, and I was actually very focused, and that's absolutely what I what I wanted to do. Um, and wanted to to work in that region in some capacity. <clears throat> mm. um, it's a fascinating language. When I, it, it, it's one of it's the first thing that opened my eyes to how it sounds a silly thing to say how wildly different languages are around the world. Mm -hmm. You know how different Arabic is to English, Arabic is to Chinese, Arabic is to all these other languages. We look at Chinese, for example. Yeah. But then I remember le learning Arabic and 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 early on realizing that for most of the letters in the, in the alphabet, there's four different ways to write them. We've only, got, we've only got two different ways to write them in English, mainly. And there's four different ways to, ways to write letters in Arabic. And I think, oh, my God, this is like four times as hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like so, so we, you know... Um, and, and the vowels. There's no vowels. The vowels are accents on, on letters. So, you know, it's... Uh, it, it's correct. It's not as simple to... It's like a lot of introduction to, you need to use to read informally written words. Yeah, and then you have to interpret quite often because... Mm. You know, just generally, if you pick up a news, newspaper, for example, today, so what you're referring to, the vowels, or is, 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 is defined through what they call tashkil, which is all the squiggles above and below the letters. <coughs> well, if you buy a newspaper, they're not, they're not there. So you have to interpret. Oh, are they not? Do, do you have to know what, what the word is? Why don't they include them in the print? I, I think it's... Uh, uh, well, cost, I, I just cost maybe. no, no. I just think it's just a just the way the language has evolved mm. over over time. Do you, do you know what I mean? To form what we call today or understand today is modern standard Arabic. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was quite quite tough at the beginning. I mean, it was very old school. I would say in the sense that um, the lang you know, learning the language, you have a very high dropout rate at the beginning. So I would say, you know, of those people that chose to do Arabic at Durham, you know, 10 to 15% mm. 
would drop out at the very, very beginning within mm. the first two weeks and go and do another course. Um, the dropout rate after that was was pretty low, if not non-existent. But it was tough. You know, we we would we'd have to obviously learn. You know, the four forms, for example, of a of a letter of the alphabet. We'd have to learn the alphabet. We then also have to know all of our numbers one to ten. We'd also have to probably know about. 200 words and and know all of that within a space of two weeks mm. so it's quite intensive 200 words within two weeks yeah and Jesus. then constant language lab so when you learn you know at durham when you know learning arabic is 40 hour week yeah so yeah so there's a, it was a component which is you know when you think you know if you go and do i don't know um say a, say a you know, like a, you know, a business degree or something like that, you'll probably have got about 10 hours of lectures a week. Yeah. So, you know, sort of language lab. Um, and then obviously you've got all the other lessons, you know, I suppose around the history politics uh, of the, of the region as well, the literature. Mm. Um, so it's quite, it's quite intensive or it was quite intensive. So did that, but did that keenness in Arabic, did that come from, the 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 childhood in Somalia, growing up there. Yeah. So and it, well, I suppose the first uh, sort of Middle Eastern country we lived in was actually Saudi Arabia. So um, my uh, my dad worked for the Foreign Office. You know, forty years um, at the Foreign Office, and uh, we got posted, or he got posted there. I should say we got posted there in nineteen nineteen eighty, and at that time. The British Embassy was actually located in Jeddah. It's currently now in Riyadh. Um, and it was a, quite an interesting time, I think, in, culturally as well for for Saudi Arabia. It also coincided with uh, the UK securing um, the very first Al Yamama contract as well, um, which cool. is the first kind of very large military contract uh, cooperation between the UK oh, and, okay. and Saudi Arabia. Is that uh, it goes as early as then yeah. that started? I didn't Correct. realize that. Ali Mama One Goodness me. was nineteen eighty, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um and the ambassador at the time was a guy called there's a lovely guy called Sir James Craig. And he'd actually interestingly been a, a lecturer in Arabic at Durham University <laughs> about uh, I suppose about twenty years prior. Uh but he was a very eminent Arabist, um spoke Arabic fluently. Um, and yeah, very, very nice, nice guy. Um, and my, my dad ended up getting promoted and what's called cross posted. So, um, that basically means that we went from one post to the next directly rather, we did come back to the UK, but in effect went from one post to the next straight away with very little sort of air gap between the two. Um, and, um, we're, he was posted to Somalia, and you know, I, uh, he, he'd had a posting for two years in the early seventies to Ethiopia, and uh, I was quite young then, but um, uh, absolutely loved it, and so you know, naturally thought that we were going back to a country which is very similar. Okay. Uh, so anyway, we returned to the UK and. You know the environment, even at even at that time, was pretty <coughs> complex. 
uh, in Somalia, you know, in terms of... 81, 82. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of access to, for example, fresh vegetables, food, you know, just foodstuffs was just very challenging. So um, I I can still recall my mum and dad, you know, going to the cash and carry and just buying just just almost like very large crate crate loads of food dried food to take with us <clears throat> um which was which was shipped to post um and uh yeah and and so we we was posted there in 1981 and we were initially put up in the main sort of state run hotel which is the Alaruba hotel which is quite um uh, there's quite a presence on the on the Lido on the waterfront overlooking um, the uh, uh, the, uh, the the tower uh, and very close to the port. And um, tower. What, what tower? Yeah, so it's a very kind of I suppose medieval uh, lighthouse and watchtower on the on the, oh, okay. on the on the harbour, which when you see images of um, Somalia, particularly of the I suppose um the war of mogadishu or sort of black hawk down that kind of uh time you know that that it's it's an image that would you'd be familiar with uh obviously the building at that time was completely intact yeah. <laughs> um so we stayed in the in, in the alaruba hotel there weren't a great deal of options in terms of hotels the only other hotel was um a hotel called the croce del sol or the southern cross um yeah. Hotel, uh, which was actually run by an Italian family, uh, friends of mine from school. Uh, his parents ran the hotel, um, and uh, they were originally from Padua in uh, in Italy. Um, so, I, I suppose I should just put it in context. Um, <coughs> you know, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. At the end of the end of the last century. Uh, I suppose uh, you know, sort of Africa was is carved carved up uh, by the colonial powers and by um, the nineteenth century. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you, you know, if you if you if for example, if you look at a if you look at a map of East Africa, yeah, um, you've got these really straight lines <laughs> that say divide Ethiopia from Somalia or. It's wild, uh, Kenya. it's wild yeah. how they decided to do that. Just that really way. very straight, you know. Why not follow uh, some ridge lines or something? Yeah. You know, like every other sensible country has done. There's a natural border in place. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, and it, and that, and that's what I suppose is that legacy that's caused so many issues subsequently. You know, in terms of not reflecting um, where tri, you know, where t- tribal grazing grounds yeah. Um, are. Yeah. That cross that cross those straight lines, yeah, um, or indeed the 1977 Ogaden War between Ethiopia and Somalia um, over contested territory. Um, so anyway, so we we arrived and we we as we stayed in this this hotel and um, so. I'll just say that it was just a it was just an experience, you know, um uh that I th- I, th- I think there was a, r- a very quick realization um from, you know, my parents that the environment that we had just kind of moved into was going to test us. Yeah, it was going to be very challenging living there. 
And I think my dad naturally was quite upset about that because obviously he felt responsible. He'd brought his family there. And um, what did your mum think? Well, my mum was an amazing lady. Um, she uh, she's, she really was. Um, I, I mean, obviously, she loved my dad very much and followed him to all sorts of interesting places, including 18 months in in Saigon during the war, and where uh, she uh, she volunteered for the American Red Cross at the Third Field Hospital oh, for 18 wow. months. Yeah, so she she was a really very powerful, you know, very strong lady. Um, and she was the one that turned around to him and just said, well, you, you know, just almost like pull yourself together. And we, you know, we're just going to have to get on with this and make the best of it we can. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I mm. just very, it's kind of stuck with me that, that moment, mm. uh, forever. <laughs> um, so sometimes as, as tough as advice that is, it's literally the only option. You know, if there's no well, if there's no other way to get through something, it's sort of it's sort of like we we need a man up, we need a man up and get through this. Uh, absolutely, and there was no other option. Yeah. The end. Of, I, I suppose the only other option was for him to probably resign because some. My dad worked for something called the Diplomatic Wireless Service, or what was prior called the Special Communications Unit. Um, was set up by Brigadier Gamba Parry at Bletchley Park and Wadden was to provide initially in its foundation um, specialist communications for SOE and then subsequently diplomatic communications, MI6 communications. Is this where your interest in comms Probably, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 <laughs> so for people unaware, <laughs> people unaware, Steve has a has a, a extensive history and experience in the satcoms industry. It's fair to say that, right? That, that's yeah. right. That's very true. <laughs> I'm being introduced by Dave Davis, that's who also <laughs> right? Okay, it makes sense now, right? Yeah. yeah. So you know, in in those days. You know, today in the Foreign Office, you do you like to go for, you know, we've invite you get invited to, you know, go for a posting or you wow. get some choice, choice in the matter. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Not then it was like um, my, my, my dad's boss at the time, I think his name was uh, Edgar Harrison, who is um, within that sort of uh, that fraternity, particularly during the war years, was extremely well known. Yeah. Uh, in terms of providing uh comms through the special communications unit and he basically told him he was going and it was that that was it and so you had you had you i suppose you had the only option you had at that point was to resign yeah so um so yeah so we did make the very most of it and um it it was quite a small embassy actually in the, in those days it was no more than five i think five staff um, and we lived at kilometre 20 out of town um, from Mogadishu to another town called Afgoi, which was about, I suppose, about 30, 40 kilometres away, um, literally in the middle of nowhere. So there were four bungalows on the, ro on the main road yeah. um, uh, out of town. Um, the ambassador lived at the residence, which was in town and very close to what's called Villa Somalia, which is the presidential palace. Um, and again, just in terms of, I suppose, context, um, 
President Siad Barre was the president. He was uh, a military dictator um, that had a, had a military coup. In 1969, um, I should say Somalia achieved independence in, from the British and the Italians in 1960. Um, and Mogadishu would have fallen part of Italian Somaliland historically. Okay. Um, so Siad Barre was, uh, was in power. And just in terms of, I suppose, his kind of political leaning... Um, from the, I suppose, from the revolution, he was definitely leaned to the east. You know, he was a socialist. Um, interestingly, he was um, he was originally chief of police and then moved into the military. But he was trained by the British. He was trained by the Italians. He was also trained by the Russians as well. Okay, um, but um, he ruled the country with an absolute iron fist. He had very a very effective. Um, security service called the NSS, um, very effective. And um, I suppose, uh, and, and again, this kind of created a tension, which we've seen subsequently over the course of the last 30 years, but he outlawed the whole sort of concept and notion of tribalism or clanism, and everyone was Somali, okay? So, um, and what was the reason for doing that? I, th I think it was to create a unifying force in effect. Um, but he, he, he did, um, he, he did absolutely challenge any notion of, of, of clanism. Um, I suppose maybe, I don't know, maybe in, in certain situations and tribes and clans over there, mm -hmm. you know, there exists, it exists like the, the, the clan, the tribe comes before the country as in loyalty to the tribe before the country where you wouldn't necessarily want that if you were, especially not a dictator, you wouldn't want that. No. Okay. No, no, you wouldn't want that. And, and again, I think it's, that's a great point actually, because if we see what's occurred subsequently since the civil war and kicked off in 1991, We've had the, you know, the emergence of um, uh, Al Shabab, which is an Al Qaeda affiliate, <coughs> and they've very much leveraged the um, the tribal the tribal network, the tribal elders, and um, without, so I suppose, putting too much of a finer point on it, it sort of operates like um, a mafia, yeah, and leverages the clans to to extort yeah or leverages the clan elders to extort money to fund it it's not a dissimilar model to what the taliban yeah it could, past, yeah you know? uh, absolutely more than majority i think yeah. uh, ab absolutely absolutely so he uh, he so siad bare suppressed um the notion of tribes and clans um to try and create this sort of unifying, um, um, I suppose, force country. Um, so uh, yeah, so so it, so it, so we we we've we've arrived in the realization that uh, we're we're going to be living here for the next, you know, the next couple of years, and we're going to be making the most of it. <coughs> and um, 
we were taken first by the uh, the ambassador and his wife to um, Jazeera Beach, which is um, for for people that know Somalia is very well known. Um, just absolutely beautiful. I mean, I think one of the things that kind of again has stuck with me, and I, and I always say this is that um, you know we've got uh, the Seychelles, we've got the Maldives, and what have you, but nothing can beat the beauty of Somali beaches. And I, and I really sincerely mean that. It's just they are breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking, mile after mile after mile of pristine beautiful white sand and turquoise water i mean it's just just amazing um and uh so initially we we spent a lot of time in the uh, jazeera area um and then obviously as time passed we then started to venture much further much further afield uh, up and down the coast um so uh yeah, it was. How secure was it journeying around then? Um, I think it was on the whole pretty secure. I say that you know uh, I probably shouldn't say, but I, my dad had a Beretta and uh, and a, and an ice cool box full of rounds. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, I don't think it, you know we, we. I don't think we ever felt that we were in. Do you know what I mean? In in mortal danger or anything like that? I think, I think we we yeah, we, we uh, ran a greater risk of getting illness. Do, do you know what I mean? Than mm. than an impact to our sort of I suppose personal protection. Why do you think it changed so much between then and now? Because it's that's definitely not the case now, you know. No, it, no, it's not. I mean, a, again, I think what what eventually so uh, what eventually happened is 1991. <coughs> Siad Bari loses power and he dies. I mean, this is after he's had a terrible he had a terrible car accident in or in 19, uh, 1986, um, uh, which um, injured you know injured him. But um, what what you end up seeing happening from 91 is the you know, as we as we've seen in, in in other countries, is the emergence of competing forces for power, and and typically again senior military uh, leaders coming to the form. So, uh, you know, General Adid, um, and but others, you know, come coming to the fore, trying to stake a claim to um, effectively take on the mantle of uh, Siad Barre. Um, and what happens is the the or what happened is the country just descended into chaos, and um, yeah, I mean, I I I you know, I recall vividly um, Christine Amanpour from CNN. Uh, it was December nineteen ninety two, interviewing a SEAL team as its landing just south of the airport in Mogadishu oh, right. and um, uh, as, as part of Operation uh, Restore Hope which is a, a UNITAF operation to try and bring some control back. Rugby the Heroes brought you this show today. 
Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation formed in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whittaker, who was sadly killed serving on operations with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan. Since Joe's death, Rugby for Heroes have raised in excess of £125,000 for military charities. And they've been doing this year in, year out, by organising fundraising events themed around rugby, beer and gin, food, live music and great people. They regularly hold events and you can expect soon for a supper club to be added to their calendar. Their most recent event was a beer and gin festival held in Old Lemontonians RFC in Lemonton Spa, the home of Rugby the Heroes and a club who recognise, as many others do, the huge impact that Rugby the Heroes has, not only on the military community, but also on the local community. You can keep up to date with what Rugby the Heroes are doing by following them on social media at Rugby number four heroes, Rugby for Heroes, and get onto their website, rugbyforheroes.org. I strongly suggest you do get to their events, and I will see you at the next event. I've been to every single one of their events since I, since I discovered Rugby for Heroes and, quite frankly, since they supported me through very difficult times. So I hold them very close to my heart and I'm very appreciative of their support, as are many other HR fans who have been touched in different ways by Rugby for Heroes over the years. Rugbyforheroes.org And um, I, I can just, you know, again, just, uh, you know, those... those um, there was SEAL team and U.S. Marines, you know, when they landed. I just, it was the, it was the first, I suppose, one of the very first uh, instances of live broadcast from a f effectively a front line. And they must have been kind of like really overwhelmed, do you know what I mean? You know, just to have these, suddenly have these cameras and these spotlights and mm. just a load of press around them when they were obviously trying to <laughs> get, get ashore discreetly. You know, so, and it, it just it just continued from there, and it was just um, it was just just carnage, and it created this vacuum from from that period, um, which um, which just allowed Al Shabab, uh, in particular the, I suppose the uh, the Islamic courts, but Al Shabab to uh, to to take a very strong position yeah um in the vacuum you know just in the in the absence of any any leadership really so um yeah uh, and that's just that was allowed to prevail certainly up until about 2013 2014 when you know then you've got un missions going back in kenyans going in ethiopians going in um, and then the, obviously the Americans going in as well. Just what were the Kenyans and Ethiopians doing? Well, again, so that part of the challenges with with um, the emergence of Al Shabab and obviously this sort of the the conflict started to bleed into northern Kenya, started to bleed in a bit into into <coughs> Ethiopia. So it was kind of it was for their own, I suppose, um, their own. Security, Security mm. do, 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 do you know what I mean? To to stem, um, stem some of this activity, um, and in Kenya in, in particular has been, you know, playing a, 
uh, for a long time a role in trying to route al-Shabaab in particular from northern Kenya but also into southern Somalia as a as as rightly I think as a, a defensive posture to just make do you know what I mean maintain their yep. sovereign integrity yeah I'm just looking at the uh, I'm looking at the map now I remember going into Uganda in 2009 and then there was all sorts. I mean, that, you know, the the, the Al Shab Al Shabaab presence and other terrorist groups at the time were all over the place. Not in Uganda, but mm -hmm. um, the surrounding, you know, Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia. And then when I went into I went into Mozambique in twenty nineteen. I went into Mozambique mm -hmm. on a humanitarian aid mission, and uh, the same there, like the north and the west of Mozambique. And and around yeah, and around the, the border with Zambia there was also problematic in terms of terrorist issues. It wasn't safe up there necessarily. But do you think so question <laughs> Do you do you think Africa as a continent would have been would have been better off for it if it had not been for colonial colonialization? Oh, that's an that's another great question. And again I think um, <coughs> then the straight lines certainly didn't help. <laughs> well, the straight, the straight, the straight lines certainly, certainly, certainly didn't help. I mean, I think, I think it's, um, uh, you know, it's it, uh, it's it's easy, it's easy to also to knock. I think it's also just. You know, it's now it's a matter of history. Do you, do you know what I mean? And I, and I and I think it's also important to look at things in terms of context. You know, but particularly the Horn of Africa. Now, the Horn of Africa has been at war, waging war, for centuries. You know, it just hasn't happened in the last thirty years, or you know, in the last five years. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's been something that's been there for many thousands of years um and you can understand why i suppose it's because it's of you know it's a geographic position you know where it sits in the indian ocean where it sits <coughs> relative to the middle east where it sits relative to the ancient kingdoms of the north ancient uh, you know ancient Ro you know the roman empire or ancient greece ancient egypt um so I think I think war has been uh, has been a feature for for centuries and just you know con a contest for land, but not just you know not just for the sake of land. It's it's about access you know uh, minerals like gold or uh, in you know um, myrrh, frankincense, uh, you know spices. Uh, They've they've all all contributed, um, in in some way. So I think, um, you know, uh, I, I'm sure Somalis would dis disagree. Um, I think there's some some many positive benefits that that period brought the country in terms of um, trying to create structure or trying to stabilize or indeed just provide education um 
but I'm sure there are many that would say absolute rubbish, you know, that um, it uh, just brought carnage as well in its own form. <laughs> Isn't the book, am I correct in saying that the book Heart of Darkness by Conrad, Joseph Conrad, am I right in saying that that is about the start of, what is the start of colonialization in, in Africa, or am I misremembering that? Yeah, I think I think you are right. Yeah, it's also what Apocalypse Now is based on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it's wildly different, the wildest Apocalypse <laughs> Now is wildly different to what the book is about. You know, isn't it? East India. It's the East Indian companies. It's, it's correct. the first rep is one of the first representatives or bosses of the East India mm -hmm. Trading Company, right? Heading into the heart of Africa to go and do business is it that's correct isn't yeah it? i mean you, you know it goes it goes without saying that there are kind of many aspects that are negative without question um many many aspects and particularly if you go back far enough you know around slavery in particular um you know which are just completely abhorrent but well, it still exists today it still exists today we're not involved it, yeah, I, 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 yeah, and um, you you could argue that some of these terror organisations are involved in that as well. Yeah, yeah. so um, I think the other interesting thing, you know, so we've got the emergence of Al Shabab, but we also have their arch enemy. We have ISIS. Yeah, and I, I think I think people you know, uh, in the West are very, very quick to conflate, do, do you know what I mean, terrorist organizations as being, well, well it's all... They're know. all on the bad guy. They're the bad guys. They're yeah, they're, the and they're all, like, they're all on the same side when yeah. they're not, you know. Uh, so, uh, and it's been interesting as, as part of the current, I suppose, um, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, some of the sort of the rhetoric and language used, you know, is that... Um, uh, what's it Hamas is ISIS um uh actually ISIS declared war on Hamas in, in 2018 so I don't think that they are but um it's it's it would be correct to say that um Al-Shabaab which is an Al-Qaeda affiliate has come out and clearly supported Hamas do, do you know what I mean so that kind of like nuance but it's just I think it's it's also helpful to understand some of the local dynamics that exist as well so i i is isn't as isn't as as strong obviously as al-shabaab in uh, in what's, the horn of africa what's al-shabaab's objective uh well i suppose the creation of a caliphate and that uh, follows uh, a salafi sunni so the doctrine. same as more or less the same as isis then y yeah you could say you could say so correct What's the problem with each other? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether it's a question. I, I honestly, I don't know. I don't. It's a question of leadership, or mm. um, you know, at the end of the day, this all comes down to a power struggle rather than necessarily one of philosophy. Power and money. Yeah. Um, but I think what what's been very positive over the course of the last few years, in particular. Um, is that um, uh, the Somali government is is winning its war, uh, or, or seemingly winning its war, and becoming quite effective at um, at uh, displacing and depositioning um, Al Shabab? 
Um, however, the reality is, in, and many of the towns that I talk about in the book are still under the control of Al-Shabaab, mm. <laughs> even today. So, um, you know, and... and uh, so they police themselves, I suppose, like yeah, like you would get. I go back to the Taliban reference, yeah, because I have, uh, you know, understand that. It's, you know, the Taliban, the Taliban control. They don't have any Afghan national police, for example. <laughs> the co- Taliban are policing it. It's the same in correct. So yeah. you've got, you know, again, it's the you've got the power of the tribal elders, and it's the tribal elders that would effectively be the the judge and jury judge you know what I mean and be able and administer the uh, the local the local areas you can see how that do you know what I mean how that exists or they would be involved in settling disputes between different people or different tribes or what whatever yeah. um, how did uh, how did Somalia compare to Ethiopia yeah, so I, I mean, obviously I was very uh, I was very young in uh, in Ethiopia, so my sort of my memories there are are, are very very distant. But um, from you know from what I understand, you know I suppose there's some fundamental differences in terms of religion. You know, so uh, Ethiopia um, is predominantly a, a Christian uh, country, and obviously you know Somalia is a is a, is a Muslim one, and um, so there's some very different cultural uh, differences as a consequence that flow out from that. I think the other thing I would say is that when my my parents first, you know, as we first lived there, um, it was under the um, under the rule of the emperor Haile Selassie, who had a very uh, good relationship, um, in particular with the UK, actually, um, and then. Towards the end of their time, um, the, uh, the 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 emperor was overthrown by the Derg, and um, uh, with the support of the uh, overthrown by the Derg, so the the Marxist movement in Ethiopia. The Derg. It sounds like someone off of Star Trek. Yeah. What, so what are DR, they called? DRG. What are those ones called on Star Trek? With the, the cyborgs, aren't they? The uh, what are they called? Can you remember? You know what I'm on about. They got the, they got the, uh, they have like the, the digital monocle, don't they? Yeah. The Borg, the Borg, the Borg, yeah, the Derg. Okay, the Derg. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, you know they were they were backed uh, by the uh, TPLF, uh, which is the Tigray People's Liberation Front, a uh, very powerful force uh, in Ethiopia, um, and in effect. Turn the company upside, turn the country upside down, and imposed Marxist rule. So Ethiopia, yeah, Jesus. So that was nineteen. I was going to say late seventy four, seventy five. And that Marxist rule tends not to work out very well for no. And and so what's interesting is that you've got you you know Marxist. So nineteen seventy seven, the Ogaden War. You've got Marxist Ethiopia, and you've got socialist Eastern leaning Somalia. You'd think that they were, you know, roughly on the on the same side, and then and again, you know, Siad Barre then kicks off a a very bloody war in the Ogaden, um, yeah. which is oh, sorry, which is interestingly supported by um, uh, mercenaries from uh, Rhodesia, <clears throat> yeah, uh, flying hawker hunters. 
and I, and I do remember actually the uh, the hawker hunters that were sorry, was this Ethiopia in Somalia? Oh, Somalia, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So bombing Ethiopian positions, um, and I and I do recall. Oh, that's right. I do recall the uh you know the Somali Air Force having uh having these these hunters as part of their you know Independence Day display. Uh <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. But I think you know it's uh so it's cu- culturally a very you know very interesting country. Um and there are, I suppose there's a few sort of things that I touch on in the book, which I kind of wonder whether they exist today. So um, we were invited to uh, attend what's called uh, an istunka or a stick fight in, uh, in Afgoi, which was um, a, a, a town on the Shabeli River. And... This is a, a, you know, this is a pre-Islamic. This is the irony. This is a sort of pre-Islamic tradition. Um, it's, you know, for the festival of Dabshid, which is uh, an annual festival that co- occurs around the twenty seventh, twenty eighth of July, um, and I, as I understand it, dates back to, um, uh, I suppose, Zoroastrian from Persia. Zoroastrian traditions of mm. of um, having this sort of fight uh, in order to bring um, you know it, uh, to bring goodwill and to uh, uh, have a prosperous um, uh, uh, growing season for the new for the new year. Um, so we were invited to to go to this this uh, the stick fight this istunka. And um, uh, in effect, what you have are two, two, I was going to say tribes, but I'm sure it's two clans that um, straddle the river that effectively come together each year for this massive stick fight. And it's not a case of just, you know, just a sort of, you know, just a, you know, ra- random. <laughs> Fight down the boozer, do you know what I mean? This is a this is boozers. Do you get stick fight? This is a you know an ancient martial art. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. What's it called? It it well. So it's called istunka. Istunka. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and a fire is lit in the in the center. Um, and there's, you know, there's dancing, there's jumping over the fire as well. Um, but then they have this stick fight. And, um, so these two, I suppose these two different clans, it it, it kind of reminds me a bit of, uh, Mayday and Padstow, uh, between the two osses. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and they, you know, they basically, they, uh, they they fight, and what was interesting is that you know, uh, as the fight was going on, you saw, uh, I suppose, two or three tiers back, men digging in the ground to big to dig out much bigger, heavier sticks, 
<laughs> so you have to find them in the air. You can't well, no, so they, the they go in with sticks. It's not like conkers, to... where you prepare the conker for like they... six months in vinegar and all that. <laughs> you, have <to> go... <laughs> you have to go and find your sticks. So the sti sticks have, you know, they have their sticks, which then obviously have to conform to a certain size and weight and dimension. I'm looking at some of them. These are big sticks. I'm looking at yeah. pictures of Istunko on, online now. They are big sticks. But they they would bury bigger sticks, yeah. Ah, <laughs> pre, pre like plant them. Ple yeah, correct. Incredible. Yeah. So, uh, and then <laughs> and then obviously they'd have this stick fight, and then um, there would be you know the elders would determine who's won on the basis of uh, skill, prowess. Um, how they've conducted themselves on the, you know, on the battlefield, so to speak, and the the winning side would then be, uh, in effect, would it would would be given, I suppose, good fortune. Uh, do you know what I mean for the for the next agricultural season? <laughs> so uh, it was quite a it was quite an eye opener for us. So it says here. Um... Uh, the event is a, it symbolizes the defense of one's community and honor. It coincides with the start of the main harvest season, as you said. Istunko was originally performed in full combat gear with battle axes, swords, and daggers. <laughs> Wild! <laughs> however, for safety reasons, <laughs> however, for safety reasons, performers later replaced those weapons with large sticks or batons. <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know, this is the thing. I, I, I love having conversation, conversation like this because, you know, most people grow up like I did. I grew up, I have a very narrow view of what the world is. You know, uh, I grew up in Wales. I live in England, you know, for Irish mother, Scottish father. And I was in the military. So I've been in a few different places. And I did some traveling anyway. A little bit of traveling afterwards. But relatively speaking, I have seen naff all of the world. And I understand very little of it. And it's all these little like insights into crazy little cultures and behaviors and practices in parts of the world where you're probably never going to end going and go and spend enough time to actually get embedded with the culture and understand. Mm -hmm. you, I can go to Somalia for a week, right, if I wanted to, three weeks if I wanted to. I'm not going to get the insight into it that someone like you has got. You know, it's just so different. So to hear the hear the thing, like I didn't, I didn't ever yeah. know about Istunka, for example. Well, yeah, it's really interesting. It only happens in Somalia as well. It only happens yeah. in Somalia, yeah. and as I understand, it only <laughs> happens on those dates, you know, or that date. Yeah. Yeah, the start of the season. So, um, you know, I, so that you're right. I just I think we feel very fortunate and privileged to have experienced it and witnessed it in a way i mean i should say it was very quiet in the car going back home but um but yeah um uh just and and i think you know now just obviously as a as an adult reflecting back and appreciating that you know this isn't an islamic tradition this predates this predates islam so this has been going on for a very long time yeah this tradition um and you know in in other parts of uh somalia as well um uh, my only question is and i and i don't know the answer is whether it goes on today do you know what i mean because it could be argued as being kind of pagan um 
because it's not Islamic. Mm. So it may, you know, it may, you know, particularly, well, certainly as far as Afghoi is concerned, Afghoi came under the control of Al-Shabaab. So I, I can't imagine Al-Shabaab would, would, would permit it. But again, I could be wrong. Mm. Yeah. With your experience uh, there in Somalia, another Islamic countries um, and a lot of Arabic countries, right, with your experience mm -hmm. there, well, what's your perception of the religion of Islam? In, like, I mean, do you perceive it as what some people perceive it as, as an an evil religion, a religion that in its structure and its belief system is inherently evil in inverted commas, or not? How do you how do you see it? No, I, I actually see it as quite a peaceful religion, and um, I I um, there's people right now, there's people now freaking out. I know, throwing their phones <laughs> out the window. What the fuck is he talking about? But I was going to say, you know, I, I'm probably I'm does he probably... watch the TV? <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm. I probably lean, lean much more towards, uh, you know, Su Sufism. You know, uh, the the kind of the more spiritual aspect of uh, of Islam. Um, I'm not a Muslim. I should point explain out, Sufism. But, explain okay, Sufism. so, um, <clears throat> so Sufism is much more about the. Um, I suppose the I suppose the sort of uh, the the metaphysical aspect of the of the religion and and belief system, um, it's much more passive and peaceful, um, uh, rather than some of the heated aggression that you might see on the on the television or what have you. But um, Sufism, so according to the the web, Sufism, also known as tasawuf, tasawuf, yeah, tasawuf. which is the act of Becoming a Sufi, Tasawwuf. Okay, okay. It's a mystic body of religious practice found within Islam, which is which is characterized by a focus on Islamic provocation, spirituality, ritualism, ascetism, ascetism, asceticism, asceticism, and esotericism. Uh, what else? Okay, so Sufis is a different one. Sufism. Mystical Islamic belief and practice in which Muslims seek to find the truth of divine love. I prefer this explanation. The truth of divine love and knowledge through direct personal experience of God. Yeah. So it's much more, do you know what I mean, a much more passive. It does. And it sounds to yeah. me like something you read about. I mean, replace the word Muslim with Buddhism yeah. or Buddhist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um so yeah, so I probably ascribe more to that. I should say. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I, I, I um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a world religion, and it's probably you know it's a you know just again you some of your listeners are probably <laughs> cringe, but that that you know has has probably got a bad a bad rap. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Because of um, what they've seen, what they've experienced, the probably what I'd call the more extreme ends, as in any religion. Yeah, we've, we we look in Christianity. Um, you know, the, the sort of more extreme ends of Christianity. Yeah, there is there is a major difference. <laughs> yeah, like the, and that is the way 
the way I see it, it's the way that the yeah, the, you look at Christianity, you've got the, the, the Testaments, right? And then you look at the Quran, and it's a very different type of book, and it's much less open to interpretation, whereas the Bible, I think, is. There's, it's, it's, you, can, you can interpret the passages and things that, 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 that in different ways, you know, you can draw lessons and inferences in different ways you want to. But the way the Quran's written, I've written, I've, I've read most of it, and it's not much, it's not much open to interpretation. Now, I think, but they're both written a very long time ago. Obviously, the yeah. Quran is much more recent, relatively speaking. But I think that the key thing to remember where Islam's concerned, the same as Christianity, it's evolved. So mm -hmm. people, you know, it, it, the, the practice has evolved. And it seems, I, I think that Islam is, evol is evolving away from, you look know, think about Sharia, Sharia law. It's evolving away from that, and people are changing to accommodate what modern day what modern day life needs to be, and how and how to interpret and what to listen to and what to not listen to in the Quran. And the same that they do with in the same day in the same that we do with parts of the Bible. We think about homosexuality and things like that. Um, I think it's just a lot harder to do that with Islam because of the way the Quran's written. Yeah, I, I think that you know that's a fair comment. You know, because as you correctly point out, you know the the Quran. Um, is communicated to being the word of God <coughs> and unquestionable, whereas you could argue that the Bible is a collection collection of books. Yeah, um, we should say that the Quran draws very heavily on the Old Testament as well, okay. uh, as you as you probably know. Um, uh, I think I think the challenge, and you I think again you hit the nail on the head. There's this concept in Arabic called tafsir which is um, uh, Islamic exegesis or interpretation of the, not only the Quran, I should say, but also the Hadith. So the, 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 the actions and sayings of not only the prophet, but also the prophet's followers. And those are all open to interpretation and you get good, you get good, hadith and um, not so good hadith I should put it or good interpretation and not so good interpretation more extreme interpretation um, I think I think you know I think um, again we we live in a world um, that's quite polarized I think at, at, the, at the minute um, and and the same at the same within you know within Islam I think um, there is that polarization there and it's quite often used um, you know, as a as a battle cry, um, you know, to 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 galvanize and you you know people to 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 fight. So, um, yeah, um, but I, I I like to look at the. Do you know what I mean? I you know I have, uh, as I'm sure you do, have Muslim friends, and I like to look to the, you know, to the uh, to the to the good as well um, where I can. Yeah, uh, your your experience with it and your opinion of it, if I, I it reminds me of an interview with another guy called Alex. Oh, what the hell is his surname? I think it's Thompson. And Alex is a he's an American, 
spent a lot of time in the Middle East. Uh, he he's an Arabist. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I learned that word today for you. Arabist. <laughs> so he's you know, an Arabic speaker. He learned to speak Arabic, Arabic in pretty confident it was Yemen. Okay. And he wrote a book. Um, is it up there? No, he wrote a book called. I can't remember what it's called. Shit. Uh, <laughs> I'll look it up. Oh, God. Anyway, he wrote a book about his experiences. And part of that is learning Arabic in, in, in Yemen. But he speaks of Islam and Muslims in the same way that you do. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a peaceful religion. Um, it's a very welcoming religion. Uh, people are very accommodating. And I have the same experience at that. You know, some of the most hospitable people I've ever met have been in the Middle East in countries mm-hmm. are rooted in, in Arab in uh, in in Islam, not Arab, in, in in Islam. You know, it's uh, it is that way. I, I think it is that way. Um, but uh, you know, it is also but it is also unfortunately very convenient to label it in certain circumstances as an evil religion, which I think is incorrect. I I don't I if I had my way, I, there wouldn't be any religions. I don't mm-hmm. I don't like the idea of any of them. Um, but that isn't the world we live in, <laughs> you know. And people are open to believing what they want to believe in, you know? and and they and I do think they also they definitely serve a purpose for some people, for, yeah. not for some people. They are good for people. Some, you know, some people would be better off if they didn't. Or they'd be worse off if they didn't have religion in their life. I really, I really think that you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, can be a force for good. Um, yeah, and, and you're 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 absolutely right. And certainly in Somalia, it's been used as a you know as a as a particularly by Al Shabab. You know, the more extreme interpretations have been used. You know, as a as a force for uh, causing a lot of hurt and and a lot of death. Um, so so yeah, um, I agree with that. It is Alex Thompson. Uh, yeah, it is Alex Thompson. And um, what was his book called? I mean, the irony is that he's a big gay black guy, rugby player, you think. And and he went and studied Arabic in mm-hmm. Yemen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like not inconspicuous. <laughs> yeah, and he's uh, as bent as a nine bob note, that old expression. <laughs> he's a great guy. He was a good, he was a good interview, actually. Um, uh, I'm trying to look for the book, so I don't want to, because you might be interested in reading it. And it's called... Oh, this hero life. This okay. Hero. Yeah. He is modest. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's really fun. But, you know, friends of mine that have studied Arabic, you know, as I, as I mentioned, you know, because the Gulf, Gulf War One kicked off, we were very limited in where we could go in our uh, immersion year, as they call it, our yeah. second year. Um, but, a, but a few of my colleagues, friends, you know, they went to Yemen. And one, one guy in particular uh, who... who then subsequently joined the Scots Guards. Uh, absolutely loves Yemen. I mean, he is a he is a Yemeni expert. His name's James Spencer, um, and he spent a very long time amongst Yemenis in the mountains. He he just knows. Do, do you know what I mean? He knows the country inside out, back to front. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't understand what he says. When he talks to me, I don't know. <laughs> so why? So why did you write the book then? Why did you feel yeah, it was important so, to get the, get it down? So it, I mean, it's interesting. I so I, I'll just I'll just say this at the beginning. I I didn't. Is that Jazeera Beach? 
that that is south of Jazeera Beach. That's uh, that's okay. what we would call Brits cover, Bay, yeah. and it's actually a favourite bay of the U.S. Marine Corps. <laughs> um, what I w- what I would say is that um, I didn't start out by writing a book, and y- y- you might have heard this from from other people. Um, I, uh, I, you know, it was it was 2018, 2019, and I was doing a lot of travel, and I was actually doing travel in Africa as well. I'd been to Kenya uh, with a couple of my colleagues. Had gone and met with. Um, you know, some of our customers at the KDF and uh, the Kenyan uh, National Intelligence Service as well. And um, uh, it was also at a time when my mum's dementia had got quite bad. And I was also reflecting as, as you know, how terrible it would be not to remember in the future mm. places that I'd gone to or I'd been to. And I just, I, I suppose, not not for anyone to read, not for anyone to read. I just started to make notes, you know. Then the the notes section, you know, of the iPhone is quite helpful. <laughs> I just started to make notes of things. Do, do you know what I mean? And then I ended up making quite a lot of notes. And um, it wasn't really until I suppose this summer that I thought, well you know, let's convert, you know, notes become pages very, very quickly. And then suddenly I realized that I had over 20,000 words of pages of of stuff. And um, I thought, what, what's a, you know, what's a positive thing that I could do with this material? You know, so I thought, well, I, I'll write, you know, I'll, I'll pull, pull this book together with the intent of obviously trying to raise a bit of money for UNICEF, specifically for their East Africa campaign, um, which, you know, I know my mum would appreciate, you know. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of, do you know what I mean? That's the genesis of, of, of really how it started. And I got thinking a lot about Somalia, <clears throat> in the 2019 time frame, there was a terrible uh, Al-Shabaab attack uh, in the center of Mogadishu, which killed over 500 people in one attack, which, if you think about it, you know, didn't really get a great deal of airtime. Uh, you know, and, and you just think of the, you know, that just in that one instant, the mass loss of loss of life. And you yet, compare that to what's been going on recently. Correct, absolutely. And the reaction to what's going on at the moment, and no reaction to that. This is one of the things I, I, I always it does frustrate me, and the, the lack of um, what's the how to put it, the lack of care about what the fuck is going on in a lot of places in Africa, you know, Somalia yeah. include, included, which are both either horrendous or amazing, opportunistic. Mm-hmm amazing or not you know that we could be just we could be much more involved with it in positive ways i think i know it's like one yeah so I, I so i thought right okay um you know i i, I really want to do something positive you know this summer i really want to do something <coughs> positive with this material that i've you know because again no one's read it i haven't shared it with anyone you know no one and uh, I just thought, what could I do with it? What what could I do that would be 
just you know just a positive positive output also you know in sharing the information i i wanted to perhaps change perceptions a little bit because my perception of somalia i mean i again i appreciate it you know the security situation on the ground despite all of the advances that have been made by the somali national army and by the government the intelligence service <coughs> it's still a very complex environment but i wanted to change perception about my experience of that country because it's it bears no relation in in many ways to to what we see on television yeah it's a very beautiful country um and it's very you know it's very um diverse in terms of uh, in terms of geography uh, as well so um so that you know that was the original intent and and genesis of doing this um yeah no oh, it's cool it's um it's it's you know, probably a bit of a cath cathartic experience as well right getting it down the paper yeah, well, it's, I, I it's guess it probably prompted more memories that you thought you'd forgotten. That. Well, it's really funny you say that, and it's funny how the memory works. Because, um, as I as I said, you know, spending a lot of time, I suppose, flying about here, there, and everywhere. You know, I, I had it the other day. You know, I, um, we, we were with some friends, and we'd gone on a, you know, on a holiday to to Sharm el Sheikh, and I completely, I for, I couldn't re I couldn't recall any of the details. I mean, the, the fact. I'd just been on a, do you know what I mean? A, I suppose on a transatlantic trip that the immediately before probably explains, but yeah, just, just starting to, I suppose, start writing things down just triggers, do you know what I mean? Triggers memory. I was able to kind of like recall all sorts of things, which, you know, I thought I'd forgotten. Yeah. So, uh, one last question on it. Why why is it called the la why have you called it the land of milk and camel milk and honey? Yeah, so it's a kind of a bit of a play <laughs> of words, yeah. So <laughs> Go on. So obviously I you know, the the land of milk and honey, uh, is a sort of biblical reference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But oh, um, camel milk and honey, but camel yeah. milk in particular, and I think camels are so important to Somali society and have been so important for many thousands of years. I mean you could argue that, you know, um, Somalia and, and just the Horn of Africa in, in general in terms of kind of like culture um, is um, I was going to say is Neolithic it's actually pre-Neolithic pre so when we say Neolithic we're talking four to 10,000 BC okay but Somali society may have actually been a lot older or the populations that lived in the Horn of Africa in, the, in what we call Somalia today may have been in existence before before then okay but they're the ones that domesticated the camel they're the ones that traded camels somali camels today are prized yeah so um understanding if you if you like the the culture around camels and the trade with camels is so important to understanding i think east africa and Somalia in particular, but also its position relative to ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or the Roman Empire, um, all, all the way, all the way through through history. Um, so, 
Yeah. Um, so camels are really important. <laughs> <laughs> camels, yeah. <laughs> yeah, camels are really important. Like it. Like it. Well, it's been a pleasure talking. Um, is there anything we haven't covered that you wanted to cover? No, I think I think that's great. So thank you. Well, well in fact, no. Where can people get the book? Yeah, so it's available on on uh, Amazon. Yeah. So it is self-published, but it's uh, this wonderful thing of. Uh, print on demand um it's an ma- amazing concept but uh but yeah they can get it on uh on on amazon in the uk or amazon in the us or amazon in australia as well as blackwells and barnes and noble and i think a few other outlets as well and the link is on your website right yeah correct yeah steve tundercliffe.com yeah oh steve tundercliffe.com it's been a pleasure <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. My my pleasure. Good. Yeah, enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it too. Yeah, and uh, it thank fantastic. you to Dave Davis for uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the invitation. Uh, the yeah, invitation, cheers, Dave. The introduction. Yeah, cheers, Dave. <laughs> cheers, Dave. He will read your book. He will read your book. Oh God, that people people who haven't watched the icebreaker will not know what we're talking about. However, Dave will know. Dave, Steve's going to read your book. <laughs> cheers, mate. Cheers. Thank you. That's it. If you enjoyed this episode, why not become a HR patron? HR patrons get exclusive access to premium content. There are private interviews with previous guests and with this guest that nobody will see except for the HR patrons. So before this podcast was recorded, I recorded an exclusive Q&A, a shorter interview structured around eight questions. All the questions were chosen by patrons beforehand and that interview is online now for patrons. That happens every time. Patrons also get access to all of the episodes before anyone else. They get advanced viewing of the episodes. And you also get other perks and bonuses. All of the information is on charliecharlie1.com. Just hit the menu item, become a patron. It'll show you everything there, including access to the HR Discord community and private patron-only channels on there. So go to charliecharlie1.com and hit the menu item, become a patron. Easy peasy. Thank you for being a supporter. Subscribe to the channel and I will catch you on the next episode.